Hello, and welcome to Culture Exchanges, a podcast at the intersection of the humanities and cultural diplomacy. I'm your host, Terry Harvey, Vice President of the Meridian Center for Cultural Diplomacy. This podcast series explores the impact of the arts and culture on diplomatic relations across the world through discussions with cultural diplomacy experts. Today on Culture Exchanges, we are speaking with Dr. Martin Pershing, Program Director for the U.S. Ambassadors Fund for Cultural Preservation and the role of cultural heritage preservation in American foreign policy. Established in 2001, the Ambassadors Fund for Cultural Preservation is a U.S. Department of State program that supports international preservation projects that span a wide range of cultural heritage initiatives, including the preservation of historic buildings, archaeological sites, ethnographic objects, paintings, manuscripts, indigenous languages, and other forms of traditional cultural expression. Since 2001, the fund has supported over 1,000 projects in over 130 countries with local museums, ministries of culture, nonprofits, and other organizations. Furthermore, AFCP projects provide professional development for American cultural heritage professionals and students from nearly all 50 states. Well, thank you for joining us, Dr. Persher. Uh, I know our audience is uh, looking forward to learning more about the Ambassadors Fund for Cultural Preservation. I wonder if you could please provide a brief overview of the fund. Sure. Thank you first for inviting me to participate in this podcast. The Ambassadors Fund for Cultural Preservation uh, is a very unique, yet not really well-known program of the U.S. government. It was established in the fall of 2020. The State Department created it at the recommendation of Congress because both felt that cultural heritage preservation offered the United States an opportunity to show a different face of America to the world, one that was non-political, non-military, and non-commercial. Through support, initially through small grants for cultural heritage preservation projects overseas, our embassies are able to demonstrate our respect for other cultures, but also to show our respect for cultural diversity here in the United States. And so it, in many ways, the program is a demonstration of our values. Yeah, I wonder what, if you could speak a little bit to the role that cultural preservation plays in the United States' foreign policy objectives. In other words, you know, how does the preservation of cultural heritage around the world factor into America's larger diplomatic goals? Well, you know, in addition to offering another avenue for our embassies to engage with foreign governments or foreign publics, um, you know, communities, a lot of our projects are local. Support for cultural heritage preservation also helps us advance a lot of our larger foreign policy priorities. For example, engaging with women, youth, and underserved communities is an enduring priority for our government. And so projects, uh, cultural preservation projects overseas, whether they involve a site or whether they involve a museum collection or even intangible heritage, such as traditional crafts or traditional music or dance, those projects uh, can engage the women and the youth and other com these other communities that I described earlier, because in many ways, they are the bearers. Uh, they are the keepers of that heritage and of those traditions. So really, by investing in these forms of heritage, it really just underscores our commitment, both here at home and abroad, to diversity and inclusion and empowering uh, artists and, uh, and, and heritage through that. It does. And I like to think of it as, as showing that we view our bilateral relationships with other countries, uh, not just through the lens of economics or, or the military or politics even, but, but that we are approaching it holistically. And that what we are doing in introducing cultural heritage preservation as a tool of public diplomacy is we are recognizing the values that we share with our friends and allies, allies around the world. 
Yeah, I, I guess from its origins, um, you know, what what need was the Ambassadors Fund for Cultural Preservation trying to address at its conception? And how has that changed over the past 22 years? The need was initially uh, this gap or something that was missing in our public diplomacy toolkit, for, for lack of a better term. But I have to say, I think that the, the, the creation of the Ambassadors Fund program came, came at a time when we in the United States were thinking seriously and differently about our cultural heritage preservation. You know, the Ambassadors Fund came at the millennium, and it came years after a program that we had here in the United States called Save America's Treasures, the purpose of which was to prepare for our celebration of the millennium by restoring historic sites and collections around our country that we felt was important. And I mentioned that because it was that awareness and that heightened, well, that heightened awareness of cultural heritage and our needs and of the importance of heritage in perpetuating the story of who we are as a nation. I think it was that heightened awareness that in turn inspired people in Congress and in, in the State Department. Actually, it was former uh, Secretary of State Madeleine Albright who had first suggested to ambassadors around the world uh, to incorporate cultural heritage programming into their celebrations of the millennium overseas. And so I think it was that heightened awareness and the, the existence of a model here in the United States in the form of this program that led to the creation of, of this public diplomacy program. Interesting. I wonder if you could speak a little bit about how the fund balances spearheading these projects while also sharing capacity and ownership with the local community that is most impacted by the preservation work being done. That's a great question because one of the issues on our mind these days in terms of the assistance that we are offering Ukraine, it is that nothing for Ukraine without Ukraine. And, you know, I like that because it's the same philosophy that is the foundation of the Ambassadors Fund. All of the projects that we support each year are projects that are nominated locally by the communities, by the ministries of culture, by the municipalities that are responsible for heritage. So from the outset, we are receiving requests for support and, and the requests are already for projects that communities and, and, and you know, and ministries value and, they, and that they're prioritizing. And we have the program set up so that communities actually apply through our embassies in country. And that we here in Washington, although we're responsible for running the program, we're almost the, we're almost the last ones in our review process to see, to see the proposals. And structured that way, making it local, making it community, making the projects themselves community-based and keeping the process decentralized and empowering our embassies, that helps us guarantee that we are not supporting anything in another country that they don't themselves want. Yeah, and I wonder, you know, folks love examples and you've done such amazing work all over the world. So I'm sure it's hard to pinpoint one to share with us, but I wonder if you can provide one example or a successful or significant project and its impact on the local community. Sure, we have a number. What's been interesting to observe over the, uh, during the time that I've, I've been involved with the Ambassadors Fund is that the impact isn't necessarily a, a, a function of the length of time of a project or the amount of money invested. Some very small targeted projects can have outsized impact. But there's also something to be said about long-term engagement and investment in projects in a specific community. And one project that comes to mind that is of extreme importance to us is a project involving the conservation of a, a 12th century temple in Angkor Archaeological Park in Cambodia. It's the site of the ancient Khmer Kingdom 
What is significant about this project is that it has been a sustained investment on, on our part over 14 years, not only in the conservation of one of the most popular tourist attractions in this archaeological park. This is where tourists go to see the sunrise and the sunset over the other temples. But it's not only the most popular one. It is also a laboratory and workshop for training the next generation of cultural heritage professionals and leaders in Cambodia. One of the many, many tragic outcomes of the, of the despotic rule of Khmer Rouge was the loss of generations of knowledge and expertise, including in the preservation of cultural heritage. So by supporting projects over the long term with capacity building and training at the center, we have contributed through this program towards the reconstruction of a professional sector uh, from stone carvers to project managers and designers who can take what they've learned through our program and continue to apply it not only at Angkor, the park, but at other sites across Cambodia that are in need of conservation attention. One of the things that is really important about that project and our main partner in it is World Monuments Fund, and I really need to give them credit for this, is they are partners with us on other projects in Southeast Asia, including in, in Burma and in Thailand. And because of that, they have been able to cross-train and to build a regional network of master artisans and project managers who can now cooperate and consult uh, and exchange ideas and solutions across borders. So in this case, this project has not only been a tremendous benefit to the immediate community of craftspeople uh, surrounding Anchor Archaeological Park, but it has had a positive impact in the entire, in the entire region. Yeah, really thinking beyond the scope of the project, I mean, you're empowering the future of cultural heritage professionals. Really powerful stuff. I wonder if you could share a little bit about the, the current challenges the fund faces from a preservation standpoint, as well as a diplomatic standpoint. In addition to the, the usual challenges of conservation, you know, whether it's preventing damage or destruction because of, because of due to crises, whether it's conflict or, or natural disaster, worrying about the impacts both short-term and long-term of climate change on cultural heritage. Because we are a grant program, we also have the additional challenge, uh, both diplomatically and in terms of conservation, of not being able to address all the needs out there around the world for support. As unusual as it may sound, one of the most bittersweet moments in our annual cycle is when we announce our grants each year because we are able to only award about 25% of the requests that we receive. And that is because the demand and the need for preservation support is so, is so great. And when you factor in things like global inflation, when you factor in the myriad issues that the pandemic, that the COVID pandemic has introduced from limited, limited labor, limited materials, you know, the costs and the needs have just risen exponentially actually in the last few years. Now, diplomatically, it is a challenge because it really puts us in the position of being mindful of expectations because we have we have relationships that are important to us, um, bilateral relationships that we want to maintain. Yet we have this model of a grant competition, which is which is not as well known as a means of receiving funding uh, in many parts of the world. And so we have to be mindful of where and how frequently we support projects in, in different regions of the world. 
And you use the term bittersweet, which is poignant because um, while at the same time you're awarding well-deserving projects and professionals, there's a lot of others that you just aren't able to get to, and that's understandably so. And I, you touched on it earlier, just in terms of the process and, and applying for a fund, a grant from the fund. I wonder if you could speak a little bit about that. You know, it, it kind of originates with the embassy, comes to you at Maine State. You could talk through that a little bit just to help our audience. Uh, sure. You know, every fall, uh, usually in October, we announce to our embassies that we are open for another round of proposals for the Ambassadors Fund. And the embassies, in turn, you know, announce that in the countries where they serve. And we usually ask for the first round for a simple concept note that gives us a, a sense of what the project is, where it is, who is proposing it, who's going to do the work, how long it might take, and in a rough estimate of the cost. At first at the embassy and then and then in Washington, we conduct preliminary reviews of those of those concept notes, then identify a subset of those for advancement to round two, which is full application round. And it's it's at that stage that we invite applicants to submit a more detailed project description and budget, a budget narrative, information on the team, such as resumes and CVs of the of the of the primary project participants, you know, as well as as things like um, statements of importance, you know, why is the site and why is it important and why is it important that the work take place now? After that submission, we we subject those applications to another round of review and then make our decisions and announce the results. It usually takes about six to seven months for that to take place. And so for an applicant who begins the process in the fall, they will most likely hear in, in June or July of the results. Quite a lot of proposals. I mean, I wonder if you can you give our audience a sense of scale. I mean, we're we talking uh, hundreds upon hundreds, maybe even thousands. Like, where are we in terms of numbers, uh, in terms of how many do you have to basically look through? I'll give you a couple of years uh, of numbers. In 2022, we received um, 130 applications for uh, requesting a total, a combined total of about $31 million, and we were able to support 34 projects out of that, so about 25%. Uh, this year, uh, 2023, we're still we're still in the review process, but we received 142, so 12 more than the previous year, wow. uh, requesting about $36 million. And what I can say, because of the reasons I, I mentioned earlier, you know, the average request is higher. It's about two hundred fifty thousand dollars, and that's because it just becomes it's just more expensive these days to preserve or to conserve or restore a site, a collection, or even intangible heritage properly. To leave our audience with one final question here, would love to hear your thoughts on how you see uh, the impact thus far the fund has had on cultural preservation uh, around the world. Well, the impact thus far, what I didn't mention about the program is that it started initially uh, just with $1 million. And uh, this year we have $6.25 million. Um, we've been able to achieve a lot with that. You know, over the course of 22 years, we have supported over 1,200 projects in 133 countries. And that's about $119 million uh, over that 22-year period. In addition to the cumulative impact, right, numbers of projects and amount invested in cultural heritage around the world, there is also something to be said about the way the projects themselves or our approach to them have changed. Over that 22 years, we have not only sharpened our focus on mitigating damage due to natural disasters such as floods or earthquakes, responding to damage from crises such as conflict, um, not only in the Middle East, but in other parts of the world. And we are part of a network of public and private sector donors who have come to recognize the value of community-centered preservation and basically engaging locally as one of the best ways of, of ensuring long-term sustainability of our investment. 
So in terms of impact, we've not only raised awareness, I would say, of the importance of planning and preventative conservation and of being responsive to crises, but I think we've also raised awareness of the importance of making sure that the projects we support engage communities in a meaningful way. Nothing for a community without the community's engagement. That is how we know we are doing right by the people who are the stewards of the heritage and who are the ones who are going to be responsible for its continued preservation after the projects we support are complete. Thank you. Beautifully said, uh, Dr. Persher. We at Meridian are in awe of all the great work that you're leading around the world on behalf of the State Department. I uh, want to thank you again for helping us and our audience understand this a bit better. Thank you again for the opportunity to be a part of this, of this amazing series. Great. Thanks a lot. Thank you for joining us today on Culture Exchanges, a podcast that examines the impact of cultural diplomacy in its many forms on global relations. We'd like to thank the National Endowment for the Humanities for funding this podcast, our guest on this episode for taking the time to share their expertise, our podcast editor, Ed Bishop, and our listeners for taking the time to engage in the world of cultural diplomacy.